Shall we pray? Our Father, we continue uh, in our worship of you today as we open your word. We confess that the word of God is truth. It is your revelation of yourself, your son, your will, your plans for us and for this world. A world, Father, that is fallen and is in sin. But yet, O Lord, you did not allow this world to merely run its course or suffer the consequences of, of sin. From all eternity past, Father, you had a plan in order to bring a salvation and a redemption to all of your creation. And Lord, you accomplished that in your Son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, whom we celebrate, whom we rejoice in, whom we acknowledge and proclaim as the eternal Son of God, our Savior and our coming King. And it is our prayer, Lord, that in these shared moments together in your word that you would speak to our hearts and remind us of the hope that we have in Jesus. And Father, in advance of that, we give you thanks. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, today, as I've already mentioned, is the first uh, Sunday in Advent. And Advent traditionally uh, includes the four Sundays uh, which precede uh, Christmas Day and uh, the celebration uh, of Christ's birth. Advent is meant to be a, a time uh, to reflect and prepare our hearts, reflecting on the, the coming of Christ, the incarnation of God in human form, and all that that means and all that it calls us to as we believe in Jesus. There are four themes that we're going to look at over these next four Sundays. Uh, this first theme being Christ's advent, uh, our hope. I guess I give you a question here. It's kind of already been posed already in this worship service, but I'll ask it again. What gives you hope? Or maybe phrased a little bit differently, what is the source of your hope? If you answered God, uh, you're correct, and at least you're on the right track. Because for those who reject or who ignore God and the call of the gospel, uh, they really have no hope. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12 states, and Paul was writing in that context concerning the unbelieving Gentile world, which is really true of all unbelievers. He says they are separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, which is 
God's covenant people. They are foreigners to God's covenants of promise. And the conclusion that he says concerning those apart from Christ is that they are without hope and without God in the world. In other words, anyone who does not know the true and living God through faith in Jesus, the Messiah, really has no basis for having hope. But what is hope? How, how do we define it? How do we understand the concept, the reality of hope? Well, the way hope is used in Scripture uh, it means a certain expectation of something good to come. In other words, hope anticipates a coming blessing or a fulfillment of a promise uh, that has been made. Psalm 39 and verse 7 asks a question and answers it in, in that very verse where the psalmist says, what do I wait for? And it's kind of interesting. It's a question that is posed to the Lord. Lord, what do I wait for? It's a question that's asked before him, not necessarily to him, but before him in light of who he is. And the psalmist responds by saying, my hope, my expectation is in you. You see, hope is not dependent, is, is not, excuse me, independent or separate from God. But hope is found in God himself. That's why Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 1, when speaking of Jesus Christ, he says that Christ Jesus is our hope. Hope is found in a person. Sometimes we sing that song, Hope Has a Name, and that name is Jesus. Jesus. And you see, God's people have always been a people of hope because they look in faith to God to bring to pass everything that he has promised. In fact, go back to the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and very early on in chapter 3 and verse 15, we have the very first promise God made in Genesis 3.15 in which he said he would bring into the world through the seed of the, the woman one who would crush the head of the serpent and reverse all that sin had brought into the world. This uh, salvation, this restoration, this recovery and, and victory over sin would be accomplished by the coming one, the Messiah. And from Genesis 3.15, the very first promise God made of this coming one, through Malachi chapter 4 and verse 2, there are 330 specific promises about the first coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and what his coming would bring and mean to this present fallen world. 
So from Adam and Eve throughout the whole Old Testament, those who had faith in God looked forward with anticipation and with expectation, with hope that God would provide salvation. And in the promises of God, he also offered to the world an eternal kingdom which would never pass away. And all of this would be accomplished by God's chosen one. We see examples of this expectation, this anticipation, this hope early on and woven throughout the Old Testament. After our first parents, Adam and Eve, fell and were cast out of the garden, the command to be fruitful and multiply was still in effect, and Adam and Eve had relations with one another, and Eve conceived. In Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1, one of the first things she declares is, I've received a man-child from the Lord. And, and kind of underlying that, that statement and that declaration that she made is almost this unspoken hope where God said the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head, that she was looking, thinking that maybe her firstborn son would be the one that would bring in a restoration. How wrong she was, at least at that point. Because she had Cain, and then she had Abel, and instead of being the one that would bring salvation, he brought further destruction when he murdered his own brother. You, you fast forward in Old Testament history to the time of Noah. Genesis chapter 5 and verse 29. And Noah was given the name Noah. His name means comfort. Oh, maybe this will be the one that will bring us comfort, bring us some type of relief from the, the, the struggles of, of daily life and somehow maybe not just salve the, the, the pain that we feel, but maybe bring a restoration and a salvation because after all, God promised that there would be a coming one. Now, while God did use Noah significantly in that he prepared an ark and spared anyone who would come into that ark from the judgment of God that fell through the flood. Really, it was only Noah and his immediate family that were spared. Though there was room for plenty and really room for all, it was only Noah and his family that were spared. Maybe the Redeemer would be and the hope would be realized in Moses whom God supernaturally spared from destruction through the actions taken by his parents. After all, he was the one God raised up to be the leader to take the children of Israel out of bondage into a promised land. And lo and behold, Moses in time fell short and died this side of the promised land. Maybe this hope would be realized if we had a king, like all the other nations, if we just had someone that would be like our leader, instead of going through judges and prophets and representatives. Let's have a king like everybody else. And so the first king of Israel, Saul, was 
head and shoulders above the rest. And lo and behold, he fell short. Maybe that king would be realized in David after all. He was a man after God's own heart, was he not? But he failed. Maybe David's son, after all, God made a promise that you will have a greater son that will one day sit on your throne and reign over all and his kingdom will never end. Maybe it's going to be realized in Solomon. And Solomon, who had the golden age of Israel, their high point, fell short. And so you have king after king after king, some of them good, most of them bad. They did not bring in that hope. And then you had prophet after prophet that God raised up because his people really weren't following the Lord the way they should. And so he constantly was calling them to repentance, to turn from their own ways back to God and his ways. And in those messages of repentance and the need for faith, these prophets raised up and anointed by God, pointed forward past the people they, they were even addressing in their messages to the one who was to come. And you see, God always has had a faithful remnant who trusted in God to bring to pass his promises looking forward to the coming one. I find it interesting that when you look at the life of Jesus, one of the titles that he's given or the ways that he's identified in the New Testament is the coming one. At one point, John the Baptist, in a, in a weakness moment of his faith, said, are you the one who is to come or should we look for someone else? See, when Jesus was born and eight days later when he was presented in the temple by Mary, his mother, and Joseph, his earthly adopted father, they came to present him to the Lord. And we're told in Luke chapter 2 and verse 25, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. And notice this, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. He was looking with expectation. He was wanting all that God had promised. His heart was, was desiring that, longing for that, looking for that, anticipating that. And the Spirit of God was on him. And verse 26 says it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ, his anointed one, the Messiah. And note verse 27 of Luke chapter 2 says, moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law had required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God and said, Sovereign Lord, you have promised. Now dismiss your servant in peace. 
For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And lo and behold, in, in seeing in that child, that Christ child, he saw the fulfillment of God's promises. Hope was realized. Hope had, had arrived in the birth of Christ. To emphasize this even further and to even challenge his parents, Simeon says to the child's father and his mother marveled at what was said about him and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, this child is destined for the cause of the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that is spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce even your own soul too. Even though Christ had arrived, there would still be a time of, of uncertainty and, and, and of rejection and even pain that would be realized by Mary and even by the followers of this one who had arrived. And notice that, that the Lord continued to emphasize the significance of Christ's birth in verse 36 where we're told that there was a prophetess by the name of Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old and she lived with her husband seven years after their marriage and then as a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day fasting and praying and coming up at that very moment. Talk about the providence of God and the moving of God in the details. Coming up at that very moment She gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all, notice this, who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. You, you, you're looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. You're looking for the kingdom that is to come. You're looking for the fulfillment of all those promises made by Old Testament prophets and priests and people of God that have been anticipating it. You will find it in this one known as Jesus. And with the birth of Jesus Christ, hope dawned uh, in the world. In fact, we sang this morning both of these songs. And I don't know if you caught the words to them. My, my words are getting caught up on my notes, sorry. But, O little town of Bethlehem. Did you notice that in that first line it says, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. With the, with the birth and the arrival and the advent of Christ in his first coming, the hopes 
and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. In realization, in reality. You might ask yourself the question, why did the hymn writer put in their fears? Did you ever stop and ask yourself that question? The hopes and fears of all the years? The only way I could think of, and I didn't research this, maybe this was not the intent of the, the author, but as I, as I pondered that, the hope is that he's going to bring salvation. He's going to bring redemption. He's going to reverse the curse. He's going to bring in an eternal kingdom. That is true for those who believe. But also, his coming also means judgment of the unbelieving world. And that brings fear and terror to those who reject him. The other song that we sang here, Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus, Born to Set Thy People Free, From Our Fears and Sins Release Us, Let Us Find Our Rest in Thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. You see, the arrival of Jesus in this uh, world, in his first coming, brought hope. Hope was beginning to be uh, realized. Uh, and there are numerous examples of, of this hope that Christ brings. Hope that is found in the message of the good news of the gospel. George Patterson came up with seven stories of hope uh, in an article that I came across. Hope was, re was realized for the rejected. In Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50, there was a woman who fell at the feet of Jesus weeping and was broken over her sins, but she was not rejected by the Lord. She was received by him, even though Simon condemned her act of humility before him. There's hope for the, the Pharisee and the tax collector, Luke 18, verses 9 through 17. That may not mean a whole lot to us, but tax collectors were despised people. Nobody liked the tax man. <laughs> Maybe human nature hasn't changed. But they were despised, and yet Jesus received a tax collector. In fact, he made him one of his twelve. See, there was Zacchaeus also who was a tax collector in Luke 18, verses 18 through 30, who all he wanted to do was see Jesus and couldn't because he was short. Maybe beyond just the physical, you, you can read into that at least a little bit with a little sanctified imagination that he was the type of person who was overlooked. Had to, had to prove himself. You know, I, I'm short in stature, but if I go after the bully and knock his block off, that'll, that'll sort of win me some points kind of thing. And maybe that was the mentality of Zacchaeus in his life. But yet Jesus 
came to his home and had a meal with him and was transformed in his life when he realized Christ for who he was because Christ gave hope to the one who is overlooked. Matthew chapter 18 verses 21 through 35 tells us that there's hope for the unforgivable person. The, the gospel of Jesus Christ not only transforms our heart, but gives us the capacity to be loving and forgiving towards others, even those whom we might deem are just totally unforgivable. What about the man who died next to Jesus in Luke 22, verses 66 and following? The one who confessed, Lord, remember me when I come into your kingdom. Here was a man who wasted his life who had nothing to show for it. In fact, he was dying because he was a criminal and deserved death. He acknowledged that. But lo and behold, Jesus, the source of genuine and real and everlasting hope did not turn him away. And someone has said, God has given us in his word one deathbed conversion. It's seen in that man who was crucified with Jesus. We're only given one so that we might have hope. But we're only given one so that nobody presumes. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, the Lord would say to you, trust me now because you may not have a tomorrow. What about the prodigal son? Luke 15, 11 to 32. He squandered everything that was given to him. He was wayward. He was in a far country. Everybody else, everybody else might have looked at him and says, I just let him go. There's no hope for him. But lo and behold, the Spirit of God worked in that son's life. And he realized, what have I done in squandering everything my father has given me? And he went back. He went back maybe with a fear and trepidation, not knowing whether or not his father would receive him. And that parable... That story illustrates the father heart of God towards you and towards me. And, and Christ in the gospel gives you and me hope even if we're a prodigal, even if we've wa we feel we've become wayward, even if we feel we're, we're unforgivable, even if we feel we're overlooked, even if we're despised, even if we're, we feel we've wasted our life, Christ offers you salvation and he grants you hope that you can know him the only true God and Jesus Christ who, the one who was sent what about those who've died we just finished in our Sunday school class the raising of Lazarus took us enough weeks to get through that whole account because there's so much there. But you know that there's the one thing that humanity has not discovered how to overcome and never will on their own, and that is death. 
What hope is there for those who've died? Even for those who've died in Christ. Since he hasn't come back yet, and his, his promises have not been brought to their full realization, does that mean that they're sort of left out and they've missed it? Oh, no. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is our living hope. And I find it interesting that after Jesus had been crucified, and the reason that he was crucified was that he offered up his life on a cross to die in place of, instead of, sinful humanity. Because before a holy God, your sin and mine deserves death. And what Christ did on the cross was he took death for you and for me. Not just as a payment for all your sin, but really the full penalty and weight of sin, which is death. The wages of sin is death. But God in Christ placed your sin and my sin on Christ. And he suffered and died as your substitute, as your sacrifice. That you if you receive him, if you accept him, if you, you, you embrace that sacrifice on your behalf personally for you, God says your sins and iniquities will I remember no more. And not only will I forgive you, but I give you in addition to the forgiveness of your sin and the removal of your guilt, which is genuine and real, I give you eternal life. I give you a life that you can have here and now that is full and that is abundant in Christ because you have me. But then when you die, that doesn't end all things. That's just you stepping into eternity. And for those who've died in Christ, there is a day in which Christ will not only say, Lazarus, come forth, but his authoritative, all-powerful voice will say to all those who are in the graves, come forth, and they will come out resurrected and glorified who've trusted in him. Kind of interesting that in Luke chapter 24, after Jesus died and was buried, There's a lot of his followers who thought that hope died in his death. You say, they really didn't uh, lose their hope, did they? With the death of Christ? Well, if the two that Jesus met on the Emmaus Road are sort of characteristic of all the disciples, really, Jesus, after his resurrection, met to on the road to Emmaus and started up a conversation with him. They didn't recognize that it was the risen Lord. <laughs> and they're talking about things. And so Jesus just sort of comes up again and says, what are you guys talking about? I'm paraphrasing here. Oh, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened in these days? It's like... This is, this is, we're significant. And, and it's interesting how Jesus just says, what things? 
gives them a free and open door to sort of express their heart. And you know, if you read the Gospels carefully, you will notice that Jesus is the master teacher and instructor in that he, a lot of times, will throw back a question at the person who's maybe inquiring or in the situations to, to draw them out. And so they start to talk. And notice what they say here, verse 19 of Luke 24. They answer about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. And, and here in verse 21, listen to the sort of despair of the statement that they make. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Do you, do you kind of sense that sort of balloon that's deflated? in that statement. We had hoped that he was going to be the one to sort of usher in the kingdom and the promises and everything that we've been waiting for all these millennia for God to bring to pass. And the amazing thing is that they said, and uh, in addition to this, uh, it's the third day since all this took place. After all, he said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. On the third day I will rise. He said that over and over and over again. But the disciples, like most of us a lot of times, when the Lord says something, we're kind of dense, and we don't get it. And, and they just kind of say, they're, they're, they're actually declaring truth, and at the same time sort of doubting it. And, and, and add to that, it says, in addition, some of our women amazed us. They went uh, to the tomb early this morning but did not find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels and that he was alive. Some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. And Jesus responds with a rebuke because they, as I sometimes need, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was in all the scriptures concerning himself. <laughs> they come to realize, verse 32, that it was the risen Lord And they were so excited about that, they had to go and tell others. You see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the believer's source of our living hope. 1 Peter 1 and verse 3. Hope is wrapped up in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5 puts it this way to those of you who know and name the name of Jesus. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. 
You see, not only did Jesus Christ provide forgiveness of sins and redemption through his death, burial, and resurrection, and justification where the believing sinner is declared righteous before a holy God being in Christ, but there's also a hope, there's a future. And notice that, it includes the glory of God. Believers, this side of the cross and resurrection and ascension of our Lord are still living with a sense of expectation of something good to come. And that hope is found in and fulfilled by Jesus Christ. You ask yourself, when will this hope be realized? It'll be realized at the second advent of Jesus Christ. The second coming of Jesus Christ. When Christ returns, then will come to pass all the promises of God that have been made to us through Jesus Christ. What do we hope for when Christ returns? Romans chapter 8 gives us a sort of snapshot, an insight into that. Romans chapter 8 and verse 18 says this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worthy comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Do you see that sense of hope, of looking forward, of an expectation, of an anticipation of something good, a blessing that is to come? For notice this, verse 20, he says, For the creation was subject to frustration, to futility, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope. See, looking forward, that creation itself will be liberated from the bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Do you know that when Christ returns, one of the things that he's going to do is he's going to restore this natural order and world and creation? We're not going to save the planet. We know one who will. And you could throw away every straw you ever own and never use one again. You're not going to help the planet one bit. But there's one who's going to come who's going to restore creation. And notice this. Not only is creation groaning, but verse 23 says, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, who've come to Christ, who have the Spirit of God within us, we groan within ourselves inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Because <laughs> you know what? Even these physical bodies that God has blessed us with are subject to decay. So the redemption of our bodies will come in which not that he's just going to sort of, sort of do a, a little, uh, what do you call it, renovation of what we currently have. He's going he's gonna to total transformation. Remember that show that they did years ago before they had uh, all this HGTV where they would go into a neighborhood and they'd say extreme home makeover? Do you remember that program? Some of you? You know? 
I used to scratch my head and say, yeah, that's a misnomer to call it extreme home makeover. They take a house that's there that, that, that is just falling apart and they raise it, they destroy it completely and build a brand new home and say, see, we fixed it up. It was a fixer-upper. That's not a fixer-upper. And these bodies are not fixer-uppers in God's economy. He's going to restore them. He's going to glorify them in resurrection. I can't wait until after Easter when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I just finished in my own personal study uh, a devotional through uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, you, you, you can't miss that. What the resurrection of Jesus Christ means to you and me and what is yet to come. But see, we don't experience that just yet. We are anticipating, we are people who have hope, not in ourselves, not in our political leaders, not in humanity as a whole, not in some other system out there that's going to bring in utopia or righteousness. Our hope is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this requires that you and I have continuing faith in him. Because just as the people in the Old Testament were looking forward in hope to the coming one, and he did come, he didn't fully bring in everything God had promised. That awaits a second coming, a second advent. And in fact, his coming again becomes really the source of our hope. One last passage I'll have you turn to if you're following along comes out of the little letter Paul wrote to Titus. And in instructing this man Titus, who was a leader within the church, he gives uh, to you and me, by extension, instruction on how you and I are to live by the grace of God in our present world. Notice what he says here, verse 11 of Titus 2. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Where is that grace found? It's found in Jesus Christ. <laughs> that grace has appeared to all men. And notice this, his grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Verse 13, while we wait for what? The blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. You see, it's all if I could say this, wrapped up in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Not only the, the grace to live for here and now, but the hope that when he comes again, it will be glorious. It will be a blessing. It will be far beyond even what we fully grasp and realize and expect. One last thought here, since we're here, I was struck when I read this. These things, then, you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Don't let anyone despise you. 
that, that's a good exhortation for all of us as well in light of this message, that we instruct others of where you find true and lasting hope. For Christ's advent is our hope, both his first and his second coming. Shall we pray? Our Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. He truly is the source of our hope, both now and for all eternity to come. Help myself. Help those who are in the hearing of this message to keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And may we look to him and find in him our hope that is not only a hope that anticipates but a hope that certainly one day will be realized in the coming of Christ. We look for that blessed hope, the return of our Lord and may even this Christmas season be a reminder that the story that you began in eternity past and was realized in the first coming of Christ awaits the fullness at his second coming. And may we trust you and believe on you and have faith in you to that end. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.